Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. Today's episode is another author sort of special after having the delightful Sheena Patel on the podcast in July. And this week, I'm thrilled to be chatting with film critic, broadcaster, podcaster, and now author Hannah Flint about her path into the film and media industry, as well as how her new book, Strong Female Character, was born. Having started out in various journalism and media roles for the likes of Mail Online, Metro and OK Magazine, Hannah has since become a prolific film critic and features writer, with bylines at a wealth of outlets including Variety, Empire, Sight and Sound, Time Out, The Guardian, Esquire, Dazed, British GQ and Stylist, and has also appeared as a critic and commentator on the likes of BBC Radio 4, Sky News, BBC Radio 5 Live and Talk Radio. She is also a host for MTV Movies and the co-host of the Fade to Black podcast alongside Eamon Warman and former Best Girl Grip guest Clarice Lockery. Her book, Strong Female Character, is out now and weaves together personal memoir with cultural criticism as she reflects on how cinema has been formative to her own identity and the world we live in. The book is sprawling, funny and down-to-earth and manages to traverse topics such as basketball, sexuality, sexual assault, colorism, her changing relationship to her Tunisian heritage, eating disorders, social media, family, first crushes and much, much more. Our conversation likewise covers lots of ground as we probe the pros and cons of doing an MA in journalism, how Hannah hustled her way into her career with hard work and persistence, how she established herself as a critic how the idea for her book developed, the madness of writing it in just under three months, and her relationship to it now as it makes its way into the world. I hope you enjoy listening. This is episode 122 of Best Girl Grip. So did you go to university? And if so, what did you study there? Yeah, I went to Nottingham University and I studied American Studies with English I wanted to do straight English, but I didn't have the grades. <laughs> so I did. But actually, it kind of worked out well because I suppose, considering what I've ended up doing, American history and kind of culture has mm. obviously very much big impact on cinema in general. But even just going back to see, like, learning about certain things about American culture has been really interesting, especially when we see the history presented through film. So it was kind of good to have that basis as well and then I ended up doing uh, my master's in broadcast journalism I, I knew before I went to university that I wanted to be a journalist I kind of wanted to be like a red carpet reporter I thought that would be really cool kind of working mm-hmm. in film in that way I thought it looked kind of glam I was like I was very much like the T4 era so like yeah. you know I, the ideal thing would be would be like you know June Sarpong or like you know and Demi Mo- yeah Makita Oliver and yeah Makita Oliver guy. like that was the dream right <laughs> so, and it's so funny because even like MTV it's like oh god loves the MTV and it's like oh wow I'm actually doing MTV so it's kind of wild to think that kind of the long <laughs> I was definitely playing the long game yeah so I did that and I went to City University London I took a year out in between to obviously to kind of you know I suppose, to save, to kind of have some life as well. Um, and yeah, it was interesting. I think it's so interesting because when I, I ended up doing this placement with Sky, and I remember speaking to, I forget his name, I think his name John, but he was like the entertainment producer for for Sky. And when I was saying, oh, I'm going to do my master's in in, mm-hmm. in journalism, broadcast, he was like, you don't need it. And, it. and, you know, it was all those things where it's like, 
I'm going to do it because actually what I really think I gained from it was the technical Mm. side of things and media law. Mm. But I think in a way he was kind of right because all the things that I thought I was going to get out of this course, um, you know, I thought I was going to get like BBC placement and that is like the creme of the creme. You're kind of doing it. But then it turned out like they split our, our course group up. So half of us would do like commercial placement and half would do BBC. I was mm. on the commercial placement, which I had to set up myself. I'm like, great. So I had worked at like Trax FM in Doncaster. No right. shades, Trax <laughs> FM in Doncaster at all. And then I worked, I did some stuff at, oh God, is it Wall to Wall Productions? Who do, um, uh, who do you think you are? But it's not the same as kind of once you're in at BBC kind of making, yeah. you know, and, um, and yeah, it kind of in a way, like it took me ages post masters to even get anywhere I just realized that it wasn't the kind of clear shortcut that I thought it was going to be by having it and I suppose it's kind of you know considering what tuition fees are like now it was one of those things where I'm kind of lucky in that position to be been able to my parents were able to do that obviously paid rent and stuff like and all the other things that come with living in London and mm, but yeah. you know having that little bit of like privilege helped out and I'm aware that a lot of people don't have that so I hope nowadays, considering how expensive everything is, that actually if someone if someone at Sky said said to me now said, you don't need to do a master's, I would have been like, yeah, maybe I don't need to do that. And I could just use my own gumption. <laughs> yeah, it's hard though, right? Because like sometimes you just need the structure or like you need to know what to do next and otherwise there's this like gaping hole if you're just like left your own devices to like find a job there's just like such an abyss of like why do I even start whereas at least the masters I guess is a bit it's a bit of a safety net it's another year where you're like okay I can plan my what to do next basically yeah and I I will say that actually saying you went you did your masters at City University like if you apply if you go for jobs like there's Mm. I think one of the jobs I got like early on I worked at Mail Online for my sins but when I was applying there like the person who was like the showbiz editor she she did went to City herself Mm. so I wonder you know sometimes I wonder like oh did I get that because I went to City University or is it because I you know on a million things did I get that little I can't know really because I don't know how many other people are applying and stuff and there was a really broad range of people but you know sometimes it is about that it's about like oh you've got that on your cv therefore it can go ahead so Mm. yeah it's interesting though it's 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 an interesting thing sometimes but I also think a lot of it's all about timing about how you get ahead sometimes your timing's great and sometimes it's like no it's just off and you mentioned that obviously like maybe wanting it or thinking that the MA was going to be a shortcut but what was your route into those first slew of kind of media jobs like how did that start coming about for you were you just applying and hoping for the best and eventually you landed a few yeah I mean it was basically that you kind of yeah I mean I applied for so many places and it is quite demoralizing when your mm. people, your peers are getting in at certain places. I mean, there was one where I was working at, I ended up managing, I managed to shadow for a day because I knew someone who was like, I think it was like a, yeah, again, this is like little things where you think about now and you're like, oh, is this nepotism or is this kind of, but basically right. um, a family friend was hosting on LBC for like one mm. day. And this is, meanwhile, I was working at a marketing agency because I couldn't get a job journalism so I was working there and I kind of mm-hmm. I kind of finessed because it was like a lot I could do copywriting there and do social media stuff but basically while I was working there I managed to get like come in on a Sunday and was like oh can I come in just a shadow and they were like yeah fine at LBC and then um I basically like spent the whole, the whole time there just trying to blag myself like really sell myself to the executive producer mm-hmm. and she was like oh you can come on weekends if you want for free but we can't pay you and I was like 
I'll do it. <laughs> and I was, you know, that, and it's like that little foot in the door. I mean, that's mm. the foot in the door, but it's like, what do you do with it? <laughs> so basically yeah, yeah. like six months, pretty much six months, I was working Monday to Friday at this marketing agency doing, you know, working, doing like social media copyright and doing, you know, I don't know, whatever marketing stuff is, it's kind of boring. And then on weekends, I'd be there at like 6 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday, helping to kind of guest book for the, sh- the shows. And I would only mm. be there for like, I don't know, four hours. But I kind of proved myself a bit by managing to land people and getting people to come on at that stupid o'clock in the morning. It's like, hey, can you come and talk to us about this thing? Yeah, but after about six months of working like seven days a week, I managed to kind of say, hey, can I can I do actual assistant producer shifts? And then I managed to switch on to that. But then the person who was like a producer on overnight shift was a was a girl, was a woman who, who was on the same year as me as my course. And she was like my boss. Wow, <laughs> so, okay. you, you know, so sometimes it is like the timing of when you come out of it. Someone who literally mm. studied at the same time, but she got in first and then suddenly she was telling me what to do. It's a it's an interesting one about like how those kind of first steps into, I suppose, media. But what the good thing about the marketing agency, and I kind of think I touched upon it in my in the book, is like how one of our clients was AOL and Mm -hmm. so there was this thing called My Daily which was like a lifestyle kind of like website and so I kind of worked out that HuffPost was part of AOL Mm -hmm. so I found like the HuffPost editor on LinkedIn and like sent her a little message I was like hey you know because it was time when they did user generated content so you could just like Mm -hmm. you know if you got a blog account you could write for free and so I was like can I do this and she was like yeah okay we'll put you in touch and then a friend who I went to university with uh, James he was working in film PR and I said to him hey James can I come to, can, you, can I come to some screenings if you have some and he was like okay mm-hmm. and so that, that's how I managed to get my first reviews and they were very you know <laughs> they're a lot to be desired like they're very rough around <laughs> the edges but I suppose that's where you start isn't it and then you manage yeah. to get your name with a byline you know get my byline with HuffPost and then I could take that to Mel online and say hey I've got yes I've worked at HuffPost look at me there's my name you know what I mean? Hopefully they don't yeah. look too deeply. And then I suppose that's how I kind of first, yeah, got into media. And obviously, I don't know, like, quickly I realised that my idea of becoming a red carpet record, reporter was going to be, I don't know, I'm going to slightly manage my expectations and mm-hmm. kind of, I suppose there's a lot of trial and error as well. What don't you want to do? And I think working at LBC, and I worked at Talk Sport as well, because, you know, managed to do that again just producing shows and you know, I, I say producing it was more like kind of your assistant producing because you're kind of get coffees and you kind of set mm-hmm. up things and maybe book guests and then you write this write scripts or whatever when I was at talk sport I was like cutting goals packages which was great fun but <laughs> I kind of realized like oh no I don't want to write buff I don't want to work on football I don't want to work on mm-hmm. like news I kind of really knew even from university like when I was doing my master's I was like Oh, I kind of wanted like they called it the fluff. <laughs> but I was like, I want to do the fluff. <laughs> yeah, I want to do write about cinema. I want to write about movies and do that. And I feel like mm. you know, obviously, since then you can realize it's not just fluff. And was the Mail Online job like a bit of a breakthrough moment for you, where you felt like okay, there was momentum after that point, and that you were heading in the right direction, or did it take us still a bit more kind of figuring out for you to, I guess, get to the level that you're at now in terms of film criticism? I think Mail Online was like finally getting somewhere towards that field, like showbiz. Mm-hmm. I was working on the showbiz desk and it was really writing 12 cars about, it could be about like what's, I feel like the first story I wrote was like Rita Orange and it was like me doing Rita Ora steps out in an orange skirt. Like, right. <laughs> and you, and it, I think there's a kind of, in a way there is a skill to be able to know how to write 12 paragraphs about someone's skirt. It's kind of insane. Yeah. 
And I suppose working in the kind of knocking things out really quickly was quite good and understanding news, you know, news cycles. And Mm -hmm. but again, it wasn't it wasn't anything to do. I I don't think there's anything from as a film film criticism. I don't think my online at all kind of helped with the craft of that. It helped Mm -hmm. me as a journalist to understand how to navigate a newsroom and all that type of stuff. I would say, you know, the best thing I think really was when I quit. When I because I went from Mail Online and then I was asked to be like the acting entertainment editor at Metro after a very kind of really terrible period at Mail Online. I got very much bullied by my editor, turned out, and just yeah, it was just a really just not very nice experience. And mm-hmm. so I went to Metro, and um, you know that was better because then I could like actually that was really good for setting up contacts and establishing myself as you know establishing with PRs and stuff like doing junkets and getting to screenings and then there I was able to write a bit more about like op-ed pieces you know I felt like I wasn't getting paid enough there was like there's kind of like sexual harassment experience that was there and I just felt like I wasn't supported at all and I realized pretty much straight away that was like oh I don't I just want to write I don't want to be in charge of other people <laughs> because mm-hmm. you have to take into account a lot of people's you know issues and stuff and you're just like I don't know stand up the energy for it and and I think afterwards after a brief stint in like Sydney and I came back and I worked to after a few different kind of jobs where I kind of went up as from you know reporter to editor and then left the company and went to work at you know I working at okay magazine entertainment editor but I got fired from there because I just wasn't getting the traffic that they wanted but mm. I'd already started at that that point kind of writing op-eds where it was more detailed like what, writing like 900,000 words on film, finding angles, like opinion pieces about it. And then I was ended up writing for Screen Rant, which is one of those places where I kind of don't regret writing for it at the time. It's really mm. like what you get paid for it is terrible. But in a way, I kind of needed that was a really good like training ground for me to mm. focus on the super nerdy stuff about like film. And I really love like Marvel and like superior stuff. So Mm-hmm. and genre stuff so I was kind of I quite enjoyed it but then after a while you're like oh god I'm having to put a lot of effort for a piece that I'm only going to get paid like 30p for and then whatever yeah, yeah. who I met how many clicks because it's a play pay the click for a month and it's like you might not get paid enough so I think that for me was a good moment but I suppose the best uh, the big thing yeah I think maybe working at Yahoo I was doing two days a week there I was sharing like the week with mm. another journalist and it was, you know, it was great until it wasn't, you know, it was good because they were, kind of didn't want us to do just knock out stories for the sake of it. We'd come in, we'd pitch ideas, we'd do interviews. We were there specifically to write, you know, long forms, long, longer form stuff or things that were kind of interesting features, basically. It was features writing mm-hmm. and then, and obviously interviews as well. But then again, as I feel like on so much of online, it comes down to clicks and then it suddenly becomes like, you need to do these like basic yeah. stories just to get the traffic. And mm. yes, after I, well, I suppose as criticism goes, I suppose writing the op-eds was my first way in and also doing mm. like critical essays as well. Because again, I wasn't getting to write reviews. You know, people had them. Even when I literally emailed all the places, uh, you know, all the editors, like, I'd love to write reviews, blah, blah, blah. Even when I'd, you know, I'd written something from for one of the film magazines Several, like I've written pieces for like a couple of film magazines like Sight and Sound or Total Film and then I emailed the reviews editors like can I write mm. reviews and I'd never hear anything back and so it's like right. you know I think that's a lot that happens a lot because they have people and sometimes if you don't have a specific review to kind of say hey I've done this it becomes mm-hmm. this like how do you catch 22 situation and so in in lieu of trying to being able to write reviews that's when I did op-eds opinion pieces so for The Guardian or like mm-hmm. BBC Culture and stuff like how can I talk about film in a way where like it's got a specific 
angle that I don't think people have touched upon. And obviously as a woman and a woman of colour, I can hit certain pieces, certain points mm-hmm. that, you know, people in these these news outlets just don't have because they're mostly white, mostly male dominated. So it's like, let's just outsource our diversity. So I benefited from that a lot. But then it gets to a point where you're like, okay, I don't want to just be like your token woman of colour to cover things that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose my first breakthrough was really, I say it's breakthrough, but it was, you know, Phil uh, Dissemlin, who was at Time Out. He was like, oh, can you review? Because uh, I think I contacted him when I was doing TIFF to run to film festival. And I was mainly there just as an interviewer, really, mm-hmm. getting, getting interview stuff more than film reviews. He, I was like, oh, I'm here. And he was like, oh, now you're here. And I think that kind of legitimized a lot of people. Once you go yeah. to a film festival, it's like, oh, you're legit now. Like you, you're yeah. at a festival. And then I think afterwards he was like, oh yeah, do you want to do this review of this movie called An Elephant Sitting Still? And it was like, it was like four hours. <laughs> Bless him. He gave me an extra 20 quid for how long it was. You know, I think they say like, because I do a whole chapter on like my whole route into criticism in the book. But mm-hmm. like in that year, that was one of two reviews that I did. And that, you know, it barely covered a third of one month's rent. So it's like, mm-hmm. so I feel like one thing I kind of learned was, I love writing reviews, but how do I, there are more ways that I can, I just love film. So like there are far more ways for me to talk about film than just the traditional route of reviews. We'll pin that thought because I definitely want to come back to how you've sort of like broadened your scope in terms of what you do. But obviously you've raised like a lot of the issues that I think are pertinent in the media and entertainment industry and probably lots of other uh, industries as well. But in terms of bullying and harassment and even just getting fired and lots of workplace politics. Have you ever thought about quitting? Like what for you is the motivation to have like carried on despite those kind of moments of, of friction? I mean, I have quit a job before I quit a metro even and I quit my marketing job to go on there I feel like quitting is actually a really good thing to do sometimes because you have to trust your instinct and your gut and also I just trust in myself but I'm just like <laughs> like I have uh, I don't know my my parents are always like we're always like say don't quit unless you've got something set up but then I'm always like you know I don't I just you have to go what works for you and what's right for you and if you trust in your own kind of ability to navigate and get other stuff you know every time I quit I always had I had not maybe didn't have something a full-time job set up and I think we need to get past this idea of needing a full-time job um Mm. because I've managed I you know I started off freelancing in journalism and then I went into full-time staff jobs and actually that that was the I feel like working in staff jobs was the worst experience of my life for freelancing was far better for me because I had some more I mean as much autonomy you can maybe a little less when I was younger when I was like desperate to get shift work but like now I have some autonomy I think I I just I knew I I never wanted to quit the industry because like, this is like a, such a privilege in what I do and like don't get me wrong I've worked in you know I've always had a job since I was fifteen like I've always worked like even you know when I was doing my masters my undergrad like you know I was working at you know yeah I worked at Topshop I worked at every all these different places like there was never a part of me that was never gonna like never gonna have a job and if I couldn't get what it couldn't get enough work from from my career I would have just got a job somewhere else just trying to make ends meet but I kind of always always had I don't know understood what I needed to do to get to continue in this and working hard and like and I work myself so hard like there were uh, sometimes when I speak to people about trying to then try to get into this industry I'm like you have to really want it because mm. there are times where you're not going to sleep and like you're going to not you're going to work every single day and like you're going to do overnight shifts and there's going to be so much where even at a point where I'm doing okay I still have this like 
I need to continue work because I've got rent to pay, even though I'm kind of I, I'm making enough that I don't need to work as much. There is this still this sense of I don't want to be in a position where I just don't have any money and I have to rely on my parents, like you know what I mean, in that sort of way, I'll mm. have to kind of get out of it get out the whole kind of job because I can't you know make ends meet but it never seemed like an option to me because I've always kind of had faith in myself that I can do this Mm. and I can build on it and I knew that it was going to take work and I knew that I was never I knew pretty early on that I was never going to get the fast track route to where I want to go I knew it was going to be this long stepping stones and it was like how do I even if the job like taking jobs that maybe some people now be like oh no I wouldn't work there I wouldn't do this but it's like you know what sometimes you've got to take those sidestep roles just so you can get forward yeah absolutely and I guess like just wanting it more than the negative experiences put you off not wanting it yeah I think also it's a pride thing it's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get beat <laughs> I'm not gonna get like shafted out of this industry by people like there's a lot of pride in an ego I suppose as well it's like yeah. I don't I don't want to feel like I've I suppose not feel like you failed as well the way that my mental health works and my anxiety because I have really bad anxiety that probably I will say this the way I've worked has probably not helped my anxiety because I'm mm. like feeling that constant need to make ends meet and do the job and be the best that I can be and not want to disappoint but you know maybe in some <laughs> unhealthy way that's also helped me get where I am today so I just need to like disentangle the anxiety thing now I'm in therapy it's great <laughs> I know <laughs> And I mean, not to prey on the anxiety, but obviously a big part of freelancing is like pitching, not just ideas, but kind of pitching yourself, particularly when you're doing much more like on camera work. How do you go about doing that and hustling for opportunities and introducing yourself to new people and saying, you know, is there something that we could do together? I think I've always been a quite sociable person. So for me, networking is not something I find difficult. I know for some people that's actually quite a big anxiety filled thing for them and and you know I think you have to kind of work on yourself in that way to think you know what's the worst that can happen they say no okay that's it but I would you know one thing I you know gain from you know working in showbiz and working that sort of thing is like you go to parties or like you might meet someone at a screening or something like that and obviously social media is a really good way to kind of connect with other people so I just like getting to people's DMs. I like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I just say, I want this. You know, the thing about Yahoo movies is that I contact him, like the, the editor at the time, kind of like a year before he goes, oh, we haven't got anything. And it's like, okay, six months later, I say, hey, have you got anything? Because I really wanted to leave my job because I wasn't enjoying it. And then by the time like I'd kind of finished working, like got sucked from OK Magazine and I was doing mm. stuff for a screen run, then suddenly the editor was like, hey, are you free? And I was like, actually I am <laughs> sometimes it's like you it's like sometimes again it's like just letting people know that you're there and then it's interesting pitching wise you know I when I'm kind of doing cold calling someone obviously it's always like hey sorry for a random email but um I've got this idea for this and having an idea not giving too much of your pitch away because you know sometimes people can be really cheeky and steal your ideas and give it to someone else mm-hmm. but you know saying hey look I've got this idea for this I've got this idea for this you know story whatever here here's the kind of basis basic premise and then also here's a couple of links to my press work just so you're aware of them so I think that's you know that's my kind of simple way of doing it but what's interesting is when it comes to on screen stuff, or I don't know, if you mean like junket stuff, or if I've done interviews where it's on screen, like MTV, mm-hmm. that was actually someone, you know, again, this is, it's not talking about like just investing in yourself and then like doing the work and then the work will come to you because I, I had like a development producer contact me on social media and said, 
hey, we're, we're setting up this MTV movie show. We think, I think you'd be great for it. And I spoke to them and I was like, oh, wow. I was like, so, and and they they wanted me because of where I am right now, where it's like, I've done the on-screen stuff on Junkets, but I've also mm-hmm. at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm in writing about film in a very specific way. They wanted me because I wasn't just, you know, a presenter. I wasn't just mm. like someone who could come in and didn't know their stuff about film or television, whatever I was going to cover. So, you know, it was so, it felt, it felt so rewarding. And so like, vindic- you know, like vindication, like finally, like I'm getting this job, not because I'm, you know, I'm just randomly picked. I'm picked because I'm, I'm shit at what I do. I'm very good on screen and they knew that would work. And so, you know, and I wouldn't have, if they'd asked me maybe like, you know, I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have got it like five years earlier. Mm. But I got it now when I'm supposed to get it is right now. And it's like, oh God, this is such a dream. I always wanted to like host an MTV and like now I'm doing it. You know, one of the pivotal pieces that I wrote was, and again, this is not as, I suppose not film criticism, but it's about film was I did, um, I did a piece on Josh Trank for GQ Hype and it was like mm. a cover piece and it was like this whole thing about his comeback after Fantastic Four. And so it wasn't just about, it wasn't just a profile on him. It was about the industry, the film industry that creates mm. these like massive projects. And then they kind of side like, like studios will put all this money in and fast track people, directors and then suddenly it all implodes. And then what happens after that? And what's that say mm. about the culture of making these big movies and stuff? So it was ended up being like a 6,000 word piece. And then, and funnily enough, I pitched it to, I originally pitched it because I kind of had a relationship with Josh Trank, like social media relationship, not like an actual. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? I kind of knew him and we became like kind of like pen pal with the pen pals like a little bit because we kind of like got on and stuff. Like he's like, you should watch The Conformist. I was like, yeah, cool. And I was like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Chatting about. And then he was like, I was like, I really want to do a piece on your combat with Capone, which was originally Fonzo with Tom Hardy. You know, mm. it's his first film since the absolute flop of Fantastic Four. And I remember pitching it to like Empire, they passed. And then GQ picked it up. And then obviously it did it. And then suddenly that thing, that piece was like, Empire were like, hey, we've got this interview. Do you want to do this for us? Do you want to mm. do that? And now I like write Empire so much. And it's so funny how like one pitch might not work for some place, but you know, making sure you make making sure you don't just stop at one place. You pitch to so many other places as well, so many other people, because what might not work for them, what might not sell them, other person might, you know, pick it up. And then suddenly it's, you know, there's your kind of example to say, hey, I've done this. Oh, we can trust you. Because that's another mm. thing. It's like people taking a chance on you. It's like the risk factor. It's like, can they do what they claim to do? And when you've got finally be given a chance to do that, and I do really rate Stu McGurk, who was the editor for G, uh, my editor mm. on that that piece, because you know he taught me one of the base, one of the most basic things that kind of like informed the way you know now I write and when I feature write, but also helped from the birth. It's like how sometimes the best thing is like starting with an anecdote, like start with an anecdote mm-hmm. as the opening thing for your story, and then go back in it. And I kind of done it a few times in the book, and I was like, oh, that's such a a really interesting tip. And so that feels like a good segue, actually, to talk about the book, which is Strong Female Character. It will be out by the time this podcast comes out, but it's your first book. It's kind of memoir meets film criticism, your kind of journey into who you are, but through the lens of film. And I'm wondering, did you get approached to write that or were you pitching the idea out to other people? How did that come about? I kind of, I mean, we're more friends now than we were then, but there was a, an author I, I know, we again connected through social media called Nikesh Shukla. Um, and he like text me. He's like, "Have you ever thought about writing your writing a book? Like, I really love your film writing." And I was like, "Oh, well, actually, I have." But to be honest, I just 
no one's I never I, I kind of don't even understand how to get into publishing do you know what I mean like I don't even know but he has a literary agency and it's kind of charity funding and he focuses on like marginalized and underrepresented voices mm-hmm. so I kind of chatted to him and he was like have you got any ideas and originally to be honest and originally I thought <laughs> oh I could do like a sex memoir because that's quite funny <laughs> I don't mind talking about my sex life and I feel like I've had a quite varied one maybe not as varied as some people but I thought it was quite funny to like look at like but like not just sex but like look at like relationships as the in general and then I thought oh I could talk about movies a bit because obviously it's like representation and then it kind of we kind of spoke about it it evolved into something a bit more about me about my life and I and I had the ideas for like each section but to be honest originally the first the original proposal that I I did it was actually far more about me and less about the movies and so I did a couple of essays for it one of the essays that an essay that actually isn't in uh isn't in the book but this right. one of the other ones is adapted so I did that this one about uh, the kind of me too the me too chapter that's kind of mm-hmm. like adapt like that was one that I sent out but I've changed it so much and and one of the things when I suppose when when my agent was sending it around to publishers and stuff I mean it was interesting because some people were like oh you know I didn't get a lot get a lot of response I think I think people said oh we I think that some people said oh we've already got a mixed (laughs) classic thing this is another thing about publishing it's like we'll, we'll publish like 10 different memoirs from white writers but no we've already got a mixed writer on our books so we've already covered that angle and that's what you find a lot um I mean no one could have it's it's wild though because no one could actually have my story so the idea that they already have that story is insane but there we go Mm. and then I think another one another few but was like oh we just don't really hear a voice and you're like oh that's so weird because I feel like it's very loud Mm. (laughs) I have a very specific voice but you know again it was good notes and then I suppose footnote were kind of interested and they they're a publisher who who were a part of Bonnier Books or a new imprint. And again, they were very much about marginalised voices, marginalised identities. And they said, actually, their feedback was like, we could probably push a bit more of the movie stuff. And I was like, actually, that's so much better. Because I was slightly nervous about being so open about my own personal life. Well, not just, because it's not just mine, it's my, my family's. So make it less about that. And actually, obviously have it as like a through line, but like make it more about cinema. That would feel a lot less pressure on me Mm. to kind of and also just you know not feel as like I'm not just putting everyone else's like my family stuff stories out there so yeah that's kind of how it how it came about and then I got my deal well actually they were interested before Christmas 2020 it was Christmas 2021 where I just said oh yeah they're interested I was like oh okay and then it (laughs) took it took to like March and and because it was like working at the deal and to be honest I will be honest like I did not get a massive advance it was I. <laughs> when I hear about some other people's advances, I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> uh, but you know, again, it's not a mass. Like, I get paid more to do my job than I got massively compared to paid. Right. But, but I suppose the whole point of it is like, you know, you get your name out there. You've got a book. You might get like, you know, royalties, or whatever, and stuff like that. So I might want to. I still, I still have the film rights. So. <laughs> and then I kind of got it all signed off in the beginning of March and then that's when I got like the schedule (laughs) and um started in March finished it in May went through edits yeah and I would not I would not do it that way again 
but yeah so it was it, and I don't think a lot of people do write a book in two and a half months or something like that's that's <laughs> mad Hannah because it's like 400 plus pages yeah How, I did like, like 100 well it's like well it's a hundred thousand words well it was when I submitted Ooh. it and I think it's like actually about 300 pages but yeah it was kind of like you know I was having to I was having to I kind of set myself goals of trying to do like a minimum 10,000 words a week and some stuff was easier to write than others you know, it's funny, one of these, you know, what I, I find it interesting that there's a chapter I did, um, which is on my eating disorder or eating disorders in general. And I did that in a day. I wrote that in a day. And like, mm. it, it just kind of came out of me. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I was in therapy last year. And then I kind of, mm. as soon as I, I realized like, oh, because I had, I got the free NHS therapy. And then I was like, oh, I need to find another one. And I got so invested in this book that I kind of probably didn't take care of myself that well, because I was kind of trained to my desk and, yeah, just being unhealthy. Like some days, oh God, it's really cliche. It's like, oh, I'm a writer and I haven't showered in like four days. Because <laughs> like, I'm just yeah. so, yeah. And, and you know, I kind of didn't really go out that much. And I was with my boyfriend at the time. And so every time we saw each other, I was quite, I don't know, I was quite stressed. And yeah, it did take a lot out of me. And I think definitely if I did it again, I wouldn't do it in that short time frame. Yeah, you can maybe push for longer, especially once you've got like one book. Right, you kind of feel like probably when that first opportunity arises, you have to say yes to like the way they're dictating it because you're like, oh, I don't know any better. Yeah, and I'm like a people pleaser, so for mm. me, I feel like I think I thought I should be so grateful. Like I'm so like grateful that they think like, and I'm just waiting for someone to kind of catch me out. Like you, you know, you're not mm. again. Like even the idea that I want, I'm writing a book, and I think that's why I kind of put this like Charlie Kaufman kind of quote at the beginning of the book because mm. for me that felt like you know I, I, actually my ex introduced me to it and uh, and I feel like it's so much imposter syndrome you have as a writer whether you're a screenwriter or if you're you know a critic, critic or whatever like mm. do you have something to say why is your voice important and I think having that reading that quote from his lecture that he did at BAFTA it just made me feel like oh that inspired me and it made me feel like no I, I am allowed to do this because again like you know it is you know it's rare and it's unique and like mm. some maybe someone it'll like it'll be important for someone maybe it'll be important for me maybe it's important for someone else but you know I think having faith in yourself and your writing whether you think you're that interesting or not is kind of important as a writer and for me that was really like what I needed to constantly and had it like I had printed it out and had it stuck on my like the wall opposite my um, right in front of me so anytime I was feeling like shit or like oh god this makes no sense I was like no mm-hmm. do you <laughs> Oh, no, it's it's such a good yeah quote to, I think, like, start your journey with the book as well. But, I mean, speaking of, I guess, imposter syndrome and obviously the memoir, I think, is just such a hard, you know, genre to pull off anyway because you are you are trying to balance, obviously, a personal narrative with people then being interested in that narrative. And I'm wondering how you settled on, like, the stories or, the, like, the anecdotes that you come to. Obviously, they vary quite wildly in terms of, you know, tackling, like, big topics and then some of them are about your love of basketball and, like, being sporty growing up. And how did you decide, like, which elements of yourself you were going to expose and how you are going to weave that into this kind of broader cultural narrative. Well, the sports one was actually inspired by Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist because mm. she has like a ch- she has a chapter on playing Scrabble. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I love this chapter so much. And mm. it seems, I don't know, it just seemed like in this whole grand scheme of book where she's talking about like her harrowing experience of certain things, I just thought like having that, having that little chapter in it, it felt like, oh yeah, that's just like, quite mundane but also quite important but then also for me again I wanted to talk about I suppose if I'm talking about myself what are the important things that I went through in my life 
and basketball was such a massive part of it and and then again like love and basketball is such a formative like literally it's like for so many years it's like my absolute favorite film and first time I really saw myself on screen even though this is a black woman but like I felt seen more than Mm -hmm. Princess Jasmine you know I mean I felt seen with this character I think for me it was like what do I have things that I want to talk about that were on my mind and then having the idea of saying it I had the kind of ideas for this kind of part so origin story coming of age adult material workplace drama and strong female character and I thought like okay well what's what, what would fit in those and I suppose the early ones are quite easy like your parents are such a massive influence on like mm. who you are as a young person and what you're going through in your childhood. And it felt like easier for me to look at it that way, especially as I had a had, you know, the dysfunction of not having my biological father in the picture, then that biological father also being an ethnic minority as well. Well, ethnic minority in the UK, not in Tunisia. <laughs> but like yeah. having that ethnicity and having this heritage that I was kind of felt like that I was pretty much severed from. So that for me, you know, and my mum and dad are really important to me. So I think it was kind of how do what are the things that I really want to talk about? But then also what are the things that we also are quite tropey in the sense of female representation. And certainly when it comes to like women, there's a lot about romance. Romance is like the kind of core thing that female-led movies are about. And especially coming of age where it's like crushes and, mm-hmm. you know, the first time you have sex, like these are very core kind of subjects that we constantly repeat, I think, when it comes to female representation. And then for me as well, as well because because as, as I said, I kind of thought doing a sex memoir at first, it was like really important to me to talk about sex in a way that felt like just trying to break past the taboo and try and be as sex positive as, as possible mm-hmm. so you know doing things about porn my changing relationship with it masturbation and like periods as well and luckily I'd already some of the things I'd already covered a bit like I'd already done a piece of the Guardian about period sex on screen so I could kind of like mm-hmm. kind of expand on that so I suppose it was kind of what are the things I really want to talk about and then what are the things that I feel like we constantly talk about where it's women on film and then how can I either I don't know and again like there are so many more topics I could cover like wait for book mm. two picking all the topics was both personal but then also kind of understand what was what would be interesting to to look into and obviously a big part of the story and your own stories you're reckoning with Tunisian identity and you you talk about embracing that heritage through film how did you begin to like access that or find that culture particularly given obviously your father was absent so it's kind of like you didn't have a direct link to to that side of yourself no, that's the thing. I think it was just, I suppose, like Googling Tunisian films. <laughs> it can be just as simple, mm-hmm. as simple as that. And then, you know, you get to the silences of the palace and you're kind of like, oh, wow, watch this. And the difficulty is, though, is that a lot of these films aren't readily available. Mm-hmm. Not So for me, it was like, how do I, can I find them? Is there, you know, can I look out for films now that are Tunisian, made by Tunisian people? And I, I suppose it's more than just Tunisia as well. It's more like North Africa because I feel like, you know, I consider, you know, Middle East and North Africa, I feel like there's such a strong, you know, and, and so for me learning about Tunisia is also kind of when I can, I can watch like Nadine Labaki's kind of work or Haifa mm-hmm. Mansour and feel a connection to like Arab filmmakers as, as well. So for me, it was just kind of Googling, seeing what came out. Like when I went to TIFF, you know, there was a film called Arab Blues, um, which was that. such a lovely film. It's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And also like the fact that it's so like gentle and, t- and like yeah. funny and that like, you don't, yeah, you don't often see those kind of like 
narratives yeah. coming out of kind of Arab countries. Do I think, and I think the director's called Manel Labadi. I think that's her name. And mm. and so it was like how, and it, and it was understanding that, and it was interesting because that's such a great film for understanding the kind of like the social psychology, the cultural psychology of the country, especially from what the kind of hangover. Because of course Tunisia has gone through a lot of unrest, and it was actually during when I was, and I was the Arab Spring kind of happened when I was doing my masters in in journalism, and that's when I first started hearing about stuff and that kind of really piqued my interest in Tunisia because I was like oh this is like part of me and I don't know anything about it and so there's half of me there's a bit of a guilt and the shame of like taking so long to know mm. and I feel that I don't know I feel like this this I think this is what I'm trying to do is because I didn't have this childhood and it makes me so sad to think about like you know when I went to Tunisia for the first time a couple of weeks ago I was it was the most beautiful experience ever it was just it felt I felt so at home and welcomed and like this is my country as well as you know England but it was kind of bittersweet in a sense because you're like I gotta imagine what what my life would have been like who I'd be today had I been able to come here in summers during when I was a kid I can't there's this specific dialect in Tunisia it's called Tunsi it's kind of a mix between Arabic French like a bit of Italian like and it's so and I tried to start learning that with a tutor but it's quite difficult Mm. and so there's things when you kind of go there you're like oh god imagine if I could speak fluent or you know those little things Mm. that make you sad so I feel like I'm just trying to overcompensate so much through culture so yeah just trying to find them or like you know we're so lucky because we've had you know, every, like I remember when like Marwan Kanzari got cast in like Aladdin as Japan. It's like he's half Tunisian. <laughs> he's my guy, and yeah. um, and then I think yeah, and again, it's like learning. Like when I started reading Dune and learning more about the film, and I was like, wait, this is very much borrowed. And I looked at the history of it. And I read, and so it's for me, it's about reading, researching, reading books, watching films. Like and again, you know, cooking as well. Like any, I got my, it's got me like a. Tunisian cookbook and you know making shatsuka making harissa like these little things you know kind of all adds to that Mm. so so yeah so finding my identity you know has been really important for me but it's still something that I feel somewhat insecure in and I'm wondering as well about like your own writing voice and obviously this was like the biggest thing that you've done today and I'm wondering whether you found that your voice kind of deepened lengthened sharpened simply by like didn't of being given such a big forum to express yourself and whether you found that it changed because you were writing a book I feel like I was able to show kind of far more of my humor I mm. think and like because I feel sometimes when you write for specific outlets, you have to fit in with their like tone. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I can, I just take the piss out of myself a lot. I find that that's my way. I mean, I'm a bit of a Chandler Bing. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I find like, I'll make a joke about uncomfortable situations. So I felt like I was able to kind of like get with my, allowed to show my like uh, humor, like my sense of humor a bit more. My editor, when they were going through it, they said to me, oh, I'd never heard someone's voice sound as much as how they speak and I feel like that gave me so much more space to do so because I wasn't having to deal with like word counts or it's so funny as well because it's like you know I don't even like understand how I did it how I wrote it or why it just felt quite um innate like it it, <laughs> it kind of felt, felt intuitive the way it came came about when I was writing it I just mm. it wasn't it was maybe like subconscious the way I wrote that but I knew that certain things that I wanted to put in like certain anecdotes things and and, and for me I think I was far more conscious of trying to make it funny than ever before I think that's probably the main thing I was trying to do but also I suppose just trying to be as honest within reason like I don't look I, it's so interesting I recently wrote about Rashomon 
And I kind of, one of those things I kind of regret, it's like, I didn't write about, mention it really in this book. Because <laughs> I feel like it's such a, actually a very uh, relevant thing when you talk about memoir, because, you know, it's all relative. Like, this is my perspective on my life. It's funny, when I was talking to my parents about it, they didn't remember certain things. I was like, it happened. <laughs> or they remember things slightly differently. Yeah. I'm sure my biological father remembers things far, far, far differently. Again, but I can only write from my perspective. So I wanted mm-hmm. to be as honest about my emotions and feelings in those situations. Um, and I felt like, that was important to me, like getting that right. So that even if I didn't go into certain details or I didn't include certain stories, there was fundamentally the truth is there. So, mm. you know, as much as I might go off and talk on a tangent and talk about, you know, films or whatever, like whatever I'm putting in there, I feel like I had to be authentically me. You know, one of the things I had to change when I, me and my ex broke up like two months ago and that was during the edit process. So I had to rewrite some of the stuff. There's bits where I talk about like, mm. you know, I talk that there's this chapter on, you know, first love, but it kind of talks about love in general. And I mentioned about my current relationship and I had to rewrite that to reflect the fact that, you know, as much as, you know, originally I was like, oh yes, I'm still in, you know, mm. we met a while ago. We're still loving, you know, loving each other. And then you have to like, be like, oh, I can really go into like what happened relationship but I can't because I'm in the edit phase and I don't have yeah. enough time to do it but how can I how can I express how I'm feeling about this in an honest way without having to go into the granular detail of what went on because mm. again I'm I... still working out how I feel about it but I knew one one thing mm. you know and then having this luckily for me I had the quote from Samantha <laughs> from Sex in the City already but it's like I love you but I love me more and I you know, obviously the circumstances are very different for that but that's how I feel and how I still feel about it. I suppose it indicates as well that memoir is something that can never truly be like finished or written, like because your life is still unraveling at the point at which like the book stops. So I'm wondering, like, was there a li- literally a deadline from your publishers and your agents? Like, okay, it's it's done. Like you can't tinker with it anymore. Oh yes, and it was really frustrating. <laughs> they keep telling me not to say this because, like, but I'm like again, this is the, like why people criticize me. But like, there was a point where like like there's typos in this in this book that really annoy me <laughs> and it was like you know they said I couldn't tinker but it was like okay but some things weren't sorted in and that really frustrates me so I can't change them until the second printing fingers crossed it gets one right change it in the ebook and obviously could have done it in the audiobook but like yeah there was a point where that's why I couldn't rewrite it and again such a short space of time when me and my ex broke up you know I kind of wanted to write a bit more but I just it didn't have the space and you know my editor they were like no you need to submit it and then we've got to submit to this yeah there's a lot of things letting go has been a big thing you know and I think that's so funny because and also the irony of being in a position where I review things and now I'm in a position where people are going to review my work and you know again like what my intention versus what it is it's like having that understanding it from this perspective it's like a massive learning curve for me um Mm. so we'll see how I do (laughs) And obviously it's been a while since you submitted it and finished it. Like, what's your relationship to the book now? And obviously on the eve of its release, like, how are you feeling about it being out in the world and people reading you? I'm kind of really, I'm not, reading me, I don't mind. Because to be honest, like, I feel like I'm authentically who I am in this. And there's nothing I haven't really said in there that I wouldn't really say in real life. And I'm kind of proud of, of that. I mean, it's funny now because I'm like, when I meet people, it's like, oh, you should read my book. I can't be able to talk about it now. Just buy my book. <laughs> it's like, I'm done with that conversation. I don't want to have to go for it. It's like, I, I, I articulate it very well in my book. <laughs> Just, Just have chapters to hand if they ask you yeah. a question. Like, yes. oh, 
I suppose, again, it goes back to the, I'm worried what I haven't put in. And I suppose my biggest fear is like actual like film critics reading it. And, and, you know, because there's how many books, how many films could I possibly reference? There's a point where I had to let that go as well. I'd be like, mm. oh, and also I, have to, I haven't watched every classic film. There are people who literally know their stuff about, you know, French New Wave or they'll know stuff from like old Hollywood. That has not been my relationship with cinema. I mean, I'm still filling the gaps and I think that's the beauty of it. Like, I feel like criticism and film watching is a crap. You know, this is what we do as a craft and you can only build it and learn from it. And I'm not going to beat myself up for not knowing it. But I suppose there are moments where it's like, you should have said this or I've come to the wrong conclusion about that. One of my favourite things about the book was that, so like you have a canon and you have things that you like often expect to see in a film book. And it was such, it was so refreshing and such a treat to like see a lot of the films that I've loved in recent times, like referenced in that way and given that weight and given that thought, like Love and Basketball, like Obvious Child, rom-coms that aren't perfect, but they're speaking to like just much more of the other experience that I've had. And actually in a way, I feel like your book is better because of that and not like because you're not like relying on the canon and you know the things that we've already spoken about well that's so nice to hear thank you so much because I think you know I had to be true to me and that I am a millennial a millennial woman who was raised on these films or this is what we watch and see and Mm. I and I think one of the big things as much as there's like it's like there's there's it's academic but not in a way that's I want never wanted to be like journal sort of academic Mm. I wanted to be so accessible like I wanted to, it to be that if you haven't seen these movies, you you kind of like are aware of them or you want to watch these movies. And so a lot of that was, yeah, obviously getting the classic, getting certain classics in and looking back. And I talk more, I, I think I talk more in detail about the stuff I've actually, I, I kind of remember and seen because that that's my emotional connection to it. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, empathy is my way into, is in my way into cinema. Like that's how I feel. Mm. That What does it make me feel? And so, but it was also important for me to, again, like talking about, I wanted to shine a light on, again, like Arab cinema and Middle East and North African cinema. So that was really important for me to kind of having films that wouldn't normally get talked about. Like Alpha Ben-Hania's Beauty and the Dogs, you know, mm-hmm. having that in there, like making sure that I'm referencing films from the Arab world to show that actually there is cinema, that people are making films there that go beyond your kind of orientalist expectations of what that that region is. Mm-hmm. And so and the diversity of that region, that it's not like this monolith. So for me, it was important to have like that in as well but it's so hard to try and cover everything so I think as much as like what do I what can I speak to make sure that's the center point and then hopefully you know people like you people who who would read this book they will not feel kind of excluded from the conversation it was all about inclusivity coming down to like the more retrospective uh, part of the podcast I'm wondering you know and, and coming back to film criticism like what is something that excites you about film criticism and being able to write and express what you feel about films right now I think it's just having more voices for me like and being part of that kind of diversity of voices now I love the fact I get to review for like I'm going to cover London Film Festival so I'll be reviewing for like New Arab and I'll be reviewing for IGN which would be cool and they have very different ways of like how they do their reviews which is quite Mm. nice to be able to kind of flex your muscles in that way so that you're I think so you're able to kind of like adapt your writing style which I always think is great like the more the ways that you can write makes you a better writer because you understand how to tell a story in so many different ways to make it accessible for this audience and that audience Mm. and actually but still be true to what you want to say I quite enjoy that but then I don't know I think it's what am I excited about I think it is I just I just love reading new people's work and I love I love that even when I don't agree with it being like moved by it like oh just like liking a turn of phrase or or things like that Mm. and I think it's so much better now that we have these more of these opportunities 
I like the fact that I'm in point in my career where basically I can run the gamut of like different si- types of covering film. So then mm-hmm. it never feels, we- I never feel weary. Like I never feel like I'm bored. Like I love what I do and I love the diversity of what I do as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, and that's such a privilege. But also I've got, it's taken me a long time to get to this point to have that. Like I feel like there is this thing with social media. People haven't heard from heard of you before. They assume that you've had all this overnight success. And I feel like, you know, like, you know, like it's Octavia Spencer. What's it to be heard? She's like, mm. people call me an overnight, uh, overnight success. Yeah. A 20 year overnight success. Cause after she, she'd been working. It's like, I have yeah, been working yeah. all this time. Like sometimes you, there is a whole story behind someone's where mm-hmm. they are for getting success. And so that's why I felt like as well with my book, it could be like a way of to anyone who is interested in getting a feel or interested about like how that career is that maybe they'll see just what it takes like what it took and the honest I suppose being honest about the reality there's expectations versus reality and most of the time like from the movie he's just not into you you're, you're the rule yeah. not the exception and I always yeah, felt like yeah. I'm the I'm, you know I'm not the exception when it comes mm-hmm. some people are like I see some people I won't name names but they are definitely the exception um, but I'm the rule and it's just you know how do you how do you work with that rule yeah and that people will see that you've built that career and not just been handed it yeah haters and then on the flip side like what is something that still frustrates you about film criticism you know one of the things I I find the snobbiness of it mm. a little bit and and I suppose and how that manifests online in social media you know I think obviously in social media is a very new thing they didn't have it back in the day could you imagine how like snarky mm. everyone would be but And I know I've definitely wanted to check myself so much more because I don't want to engage in like stockiness where it's very specifically like pylons and things like that. Because I just, as someone who's experienced that type of stuff, I, I, it makes me, it kind of makes me sad the way that that part of film criticism is kind of very much personality driven like people like make it their personality to be like super snarky and horrible and also Mm. how that's kind of you know I think you know don't worry darling is a very good example of like how we're kind of talking about something that I feel quite uncomfortable about the conversation that's gone online especially when your peers are kind of engaging it in a way that you feel like we are professionals in this business you know there's certain things that you know you can speak up on but sometimes I do feel like there can be a level that feels like are you doing this for the likes, for the kind of, for the clout, or do you actually mm-hmm. feel that strongly about it? Save the snark for the, for your reviews, I feel like. Put your stock yeah. in the reviews. I feel like sometimes there can be just like a bit of like infighting, like not infighting, but just like unnecessarily like weird tension and cliqueiness within it that feels mm-hmm. like kind of, this is like high school. Let's all remember we are professional peers. Let's, and I feel like that can sometimes, and this is, and I say this as someone who has checked myself and realised that yeah. I might have contributed to that and really want to like actively avoid doing that again. And I'd love to know what is something that you're proudest of having achieved in your career? I think just being able to do this as a career, like as a freelance career, I'm really proud mm-hmm. that I've kind of managed to build it to the point that I've got to this place. Again, counting in the privileges that I might have had along the way. But it's also, I haven't had it as, you know, there've been stuff that I haven't added it easy, as easy as other people. I mean, that's what's been intersectional is. So I'm really proud of that. Really proud of this book. And I, I can't believe I've actually done it <laughs> so well. <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of a big achievement for me. Having this career and being able to have written a book is kind of wild. And I suppose just, I know, and another one is just, I don't know, my, my dad's had Empire since the first like edition that I can call, like call myself a regular writer for them and have done mm. my first cover story recently. It's kind of 
wild. So I just don't want to, I don't take any of this for granted at all. And actually it kind of makes me want to just keep on working harder because you just never know when it's just gonna be like, no, we've moved on. (laughs) You're done, Hannah. (laughs) And what about something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve or advice that maybe you would pass back to a younger Hannah? You don't have to be liked by everyone. I think that's Mm. one of the big things I think. And that would hopefully help my anxiety because I think that all feeds into it. So don't worry about being a people pleaser all the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Words to live by. And finally, is there a film by a woman director that you would like to recommend today? Well, I suppose I should say with Kauta Benhani is Beauty and the Dogs. I just thought it was just Mm. phenomenal. It's about a woman who experienced a brutal sexual assault by police officers. And it's about her on the night she goes through trying to report this. And, you know, it was at a time and it's quite, it's not like an old, older film. It's like kind of like not like 20, the 2010. It's not even that old, but just the way it's shot and he's kind of in like kind of nine, I think it's like nine vignettes and it's just harrowing, but also just so just the kind of the mundanity of the situation as well. And I also appreciate like her trying to go to these, you know, hospitals and these different places and just having to face bureaucracy and people just not, you know, again, the kind of patriarchal kind of system and, you know, people not wanted to speak out and the police brutality of it. But then, you know, one thing I do really appreciate is that we don't see the assault. I think that can be such an important thing. Mm. We don't, when you're talking about such subjects, when it comes to sexual assault, like, again, like, what does it, what does it add? Do we need to specifically see it? Do we need to explicitly see that assault for us to understand the pain of it? No, because that actor and the way it's shot and the script is that good. You can feel it in their performance. And yeah, that's just so beautiful. So if you love the man who uh, sold his skin, which was Tunisia's Oscars entry, uh, go back and watch Beauty and the Dogs because it's just just fantastic. Hannah, thank you so much. And thank you for the book. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and everyone should read it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you like what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Girl Grip for pod-related news. If you want to listen to more episodes like this, I recommend digging out my interviews with critics Clarice Lockery and Jessica Kiang. In the meantime, have a great week and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Music